iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yo, technology, what is it all about? If you're a founder today, you need to build some, some financial literacy really, really fast on how to do these structures because the amount of value you leave on the table is immense if, if yeah. you don't think through that, uh, that ownership structure for the long run. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. How are you doing? Here we are, another week. Uh, I don't know about you, but I feel like life has become a bit like Groundhog Day. Like every day is the same. At least in my case, I get up, I feed the kids, take my son, my older son to daycare, uh, which is open now. And hopefully stays open. Work all day, pick them up, then dinner time, bedtime, and then I go back to work. But the variety of life is, in many ways, just gone. I don't go to the store. I rarely see friends. We're all fine and safe and healthy. But it is a bizarre setup where you're mostly homebound and in a way uh, that's like kind of never really experienced before. Of course, I recognize that this, of course, is a very privileged position we have. But it's all just very strange. Anyhow, that's all a very roundabout way to introduce this week's guest, who is here to tell us what is actually happening out there in the world to big businesses, small businesses, governments, everyone really. Christian Lang is the founder of TradeShift, which automates payments and processes for businesses around the world. Lang affectionately calls the company basically the plumbing of supply chains kind of making things work now you most likely have never heard of trade shift unless you're a supply chain nerd perhaps and if you are respect but it's a big company it handles something like 300 billion dollars worth of trade it's raised over 400 million dollars it's a unicorn i think they have something like a thousand employees anyhow christian given where the company operates in the middle of all of these um, businesses, really has a great insight of what is happening in this COVID crazy world because they're the ones handling the buying and selling of stuff. And so I caught up with him last week to talk about the world and Trade Shift in particular from his new digs in Alaska, hence the bear story you heard at the top. So like a lot of tech CEOs, he has decamped to the wilderness to, I don't know about wait out the pandemic, but certainly work there for the foreseeable. But we covered a lot of ground from what countries are doing the best, which ones are doing the worst, this huge shift in the retail industry and the kind of the death of the high street. We talk about fax machines. Yeah, fax machines. People still use those apparently. Uh, to working from home and a whole lot more. Uh, he's a really fun person to talk to. Uh, he has some really quite interesting insights about what is happening now and where the world is going. 
and I think you're really going to like this one. So without further ado, I give you Christian Lang, founder of TradeShift. Enjoy. I did, a, I did a call last week with shareholders and a black bear walked by behind me and I didn't see until one of my investors yelled, there's a bear. And so I was like, yeah. So it's, it's, it's sort of pretty in nature. It sounds like it's pretty in nature, yeah. I've just had a really crappy start to the day. Somebody at 4.43 in the morning came, stopped in front of our house and, and sawed off the catalytic converter from our Prius, which we caught on our ring camera. And we live in like a pretty decent neighborhood, but it's just, I don't think any black bears are going to be doing uh, anything to, that, to any of your vehicles. No, no. I mean, they'll break into the trash, but yeah, I mean, you you got to live in San Francisco to see these things. You know, it's it's just, it's crazy, right? We live in Oakland, so we love San Francisco, but uh, which is a bit better. But either way, just the, and I've spoken with other people about this. I don't know if you know Expensify. Do you know those guys? Yeah, 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 of course. So I had the CEO on and he was talking about how they're, they've gone fully remote as of about two years ago, because he was just saying he had a kid. He was living in San Francisco and he's like, oh, I could move to Portland or Seattle where he ended up and get like three times as much house for less money and a backyard and everything else. And it's just like, what am I doing here in San Francisco? Yeah. But I think it's like San Francisco is a city that needs waves. I mean, you saw that the, the price of the studio now in Soma is below 2500 and, you know, landlords are doing all sorts of crazy things to, to keep people. And I think that's really good. Because it's, it's sort of like, a, you know, nature needs forest fires to, to grow. And I think San Francisco truly need destruction every 10, 15 years for new crop to get in, right? When I got to San Francisco, it was right after 2008. And, and it was sort of a research. Everything was new. Everybody was coming in and everything was fresh. And, you know, suddenly, you know, a juice cost $24 and, <laughs> it, you know, just to be blunt about it, all the NBAs showed up, right? And, and it just got kind of shitty. It's sort of a creative city like that, right? I mean, there's this theory that one of the reasons that Japan has all of this really cool architecture and art and innovation, all of these things, is because they have all of the frequent destruction, right? I mean, Tokyo has been destroyed, I don't know how many times. But I think sort of metaphorically, I think San Francisco needs to be destroyed, at least as a culture, over and over to sort of research. So I think it's good. I think it's great actually are you gonna go back i mean i live in marin now so I, I i moved out of the city you know i got a kid four year old so but I, i'm gonna come to the office still i'm probably gonna go two three days a week but it also changes your calculation right because if you go into the office but not everybody is there it's different right so you go into the office to have zoom calls it's very weird right because if a, if a percent of my employees are not there they're elsewhere and distributed across teams it's not like you can go into the office and meet everyone. You've got to go into the office and have Zoom calls with somebody who's not there. My wife works for the Facebook empire. And she said, I mean, her whole life is Zoom calls. But it was that before the pandemic. Yeah. And now she's just doing Zoom calls from our garage rather than the office. And they've already said, oh, don't come back till 2021. But she's kind of like, you know, it would be nice to have the option to go to an office here and there. But her light, her kind of day to day, aside from chopping off the commute, hasn't really changed markedly. Yeah, no, I, I think it's we got to be a little careful, right? Because especially for young people, and especially for 
I'm very concerned, right? We have a big office in Malaysia. I have calls with those guys and they're sitting in the kitchen with their grandparents in the background and five kids. So I think, you know, it's very easy to sort of say, oh yeah, we're going to all just be remote now. That's fine if you live in Marim and, you know, but, but I do think what offices are, we're thinking a lot more about having distributed office, like having hops that are smaller, almost like collaboration spaces. So maybe rather than have one big office in San Francisco, we might have a collaboration space in Oakland, we might have one in South Bay, and you can go in there and you can meet when you need to or have a place to have calls or relieve the pressure from home. So maybe rather that big sort of, you know, signature office with all of the Silicon Valley HBO style furniture, you can have some smaller hubs, right? It's going to change, but I do think we need to have spaces for the people who are, you know, coming into the job or who's really dependent on, on being on the phone and so on. How have you found it from a productivity perspective, having basically all of a sudden from one day to the next, everybody just home? So we actually experienced, especially on the engineering side, we have data on this, right? So we track how many releases we do a week. And actually what we found was that productivity went up on the product side. And in fact, we got a little concerned because we were afraid of burnout, right? So suddenly people were sitting at home. There was no sort of natural breaks, people working in the weekends. So we had to sort of go the other way and say, hey, hey, we know that everybody's pushing and this is a special situation. This is a marathon. It's not a sprint, right? And I think it's not something that's just going to be three months or four months or six months, right? So, so, so we saw an increase in productivity in the beginning, and and then it sort of flattened out, and now we sort of push back a little bit. But we also are aware that certain jobs are harder, and certain things are harder to collaborate. And I think you just got to you got to be a little bit more patient with people. You got to give them a little bit more space. I see all of these rules of how to do professional Zoom calls, like don't have anyone in the background, don't ever eat, whatever. It's bullshit. Like, I mean, people people are living literally their lives on Zoom and, and trying to work. So I think you know we gotta be we gotta be a little kinder. Yeah, you say you have a thousand people working for you. Yeah. How old is Trade Shift? Uh, ten years. And could you give an, an explanation? Because, I mean, we're, we've kind of just dove headlong into uh, black bears and uh, remote working. But <laughs> what is Trade Shift? You know, what do you guys do? We started uh, 10 years ago, and, and me and Mikla and Gerd, who are my co-founders, we have an experience. We worked together for like six or seven years building payment networks and building cross-border trading infrastructure for first the Danish government and then for the European Union. And sort of have a background with very, very large scale cloud infrastructure and we we had a simple thesis which essentially were that computing moves sort of in three phases on-prem cloud and network and in consumer it's very it's very obvious right so you just we started with all of our desktops we if we took a photo we would put it into our desktop and we would still look at our photos so we'd get the print or whatever we did with them then we got like google picasa we start uploading and storing them in the cloud and then like five seconds later we got instagram and everything got shared like Today, the thought of just taking a picture and not sharing it somehow is, is ridiculous, right? And it's, it's even more ridiculous to think about any consumer app not having a, any kind of network functionality, like being networked. Um, and, 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 and the reason for that is pretty simple, which is whenever something is in the cloud, the cost of connectivity drops to zero, right? So network is the natural end state for cloud. Yeah. pieces. So in enterprise, we said, okay, the same thing is going to happen, but it's going to happen much slower because there's all of this inertia that's cultural. It's nothing to do with technology. It's just like, oh my gosh, should we do that and all of that? So we wanted to create 
essentially the network for business and sort of take advantage for that third state and say, okay, we want to be the default network that connects businesses when they trade. And that became TradeShift. And, and early on, it looked and felt very much like LinkedIn. You would join any company in the world. You could create an account. You could sign up. You could describe what your business did, like your window cleaner or you provide hats for, for ordering the street. You could then invite your customers, no matter where they were in the world, invite them to do business with you. And we would connect you to their business systems for free. So if that was SAP or Oracle or whatever, we would make that link. Right. Uh, and that doesn't sound like much, but before TradeShift, that probably would cost you half a million dollars in two set consultants. You know, suddenly if you were in Malaysia, you could go do business with Apple without having to invest in a lot of... So we, we collapsed that distance. The very first version were completely free. Companies signed up all over the world. We, we signed up like 50,000 companies in more than 100 countries. We sitting with Google Translate just trying to figure out what are people using TradeShift for. And then some of the largest companies in the world, they, they started calling us and saying, hey, we have all of these suppliers uh, calling us all the time about TradeShift. We used to be the other way around, that we have to go and push them to do stuff. Do you guys have an enterprise solution? And being good entrepreneurs, we, we obviously said yes showed up at a PowerPoint and, and unfortunately sold. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and ever since then, we've just, we just been trying, I don't know, somehow to keep it, keep it all together. But, uh, but that's what we're doing. Uh, and today we run, I mean, I mean, apart from the job, right, today we run global, uh, we run cloud-based supply chains for 125 of the Fortune 500. We push something like $300 billion of trade through. Uh, we just released actually a report on, on global trade and, and where it's heading with all of this COVID stuff. So, so today we are probably the largest sort of B2B business network in the world. That's what we, we try to connect businesses. And a big part of that, of course, is just simply simple stuff like invoicing. Yeah, I mean, invoicing, purchasing, logistics. Like we like to say, like, you know, there's a lot of people doing a lot of fancy stuff in supply chains, you know, economists and so on. We, we describe ourselves as the plumbers of the plumbers of supply chains. It's not the fancy stuff. It's all, it's all the boring, low-level operational stuff. You know, uh, invoices and purchase orders is like the TCP/IP of, of the internet, right? It's the packages. Right. It's, it's 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 what makes everything flow. That's the plumbing. How much have you guys raised total? Uh, four hundred million dollars today. And you're, if you uh, believe the tech press, you guys are a unicorn. I don't know if that. I don't know if that's like a good or a bad thing these days. It kind of feels very two thousand eight to talk about two thousand eighteen to talk about unicorns. We rarely use it these days, right? Because it, I mean. Yeah, I mean, we obviously, you know, hit a certain valuation mark, but but I think like most SaaS companies of our generation, we pretty much reached it all at the same time and, and kept going. I think most of us has proven, I think that, the, you know, especially in B2B, that the model is, is sort of there. I mean, we have, all of us are generating revenue, all of us are, are scaling our businesses and you know, if you want to talk about a unicorn or not, I think it's, it's not the most important. It, it was yeah. really important three years ago. Exactly. So you said you did this report on global trade. So what's, I'd be real, because you guys are obviously kind of on the cold face of all of this. What what do you see happening and what do you think is going to happen? I don't know if there's anything that's particularly kind of surprising that might be obvious, but just the, the scale of it is surprising or things that aren't obvious that, that, that is happening right now. So I think a few things that sort of just takeaways is that the country, I mean, this sounds obvious, but but the scale of it might not be. The countries that close down the earliest and the hardest are having the biggest rebound in orders and purchasing mm. in the supply chain. And orders are a lead indicator for GDP, 
right? So if you're seeing a lot of uptick in orders this quarter, it means GDP will be up next quarter because that's essentially future business that's being put in, right? So China, Nordics, all rebounding hard right now in the economy. So it's, it's looking like a sharp V everywhere. Right. Right? The economy is shut down hard, very clear in direction, very clear what the plan was, very clear in moving. In the Eurozone, UK is... I don't know. Can, can we call UK part of the Eurozone? I don't know. I, don't, I mean, it's it's very... Do- who knows? <laughs> UK and the EU. Yes. So compared to the EU, UK is doing significantly worse. Significantly worse? Yeah. So, so if you look at the rebound, like orders in retail in the UK is lower than the rest of the Eurozone. And the same with the US. So, so essentially, I think, I mean, it's sort of... Causality is a dangerous thing. But I would say that the countries that have been the most clear in direction has created the strongest sentiment in industry in opening up again. I mean, so if you're a retailer and you can see the plan is very clear, you say, okay, we will go in and put those orders in because we can expect to have people in our stores. But if it's zigzag all the time, you say, okay, we better hold back a little bit because we don't know what's going to happen. And I think the dangerous thing is, that not having orders in now means that those countries are not going to see a rebound in the economy, neither in Q3 and Q4, because that's the business that's going to happen there, right? So I think that's that's sort of maybe some of the takeaway, right? But China right now being the clear, clear winner, they bounced up 31%, almost back to, to pre-COVID levels um, this quarter. Wow. Yeah, because here in California, as I'm sure you know, we've actually shifted backward we were i think at phase you know there's so many phases of the reopening where i think we're at phase two now we've kind of shifted back to phase one because cases are spiking again and it's hard to kind of see how this just on the ground when you look at restaurants and everything else what do you do as a as a business when it's all just so uncertain and you you're just waiting for the next shoe to drop and it seems to always drop at the moment yeah and i I think one thing right is we did you know, the PPP program, we did the stimulus stuff in the UK, that was the future fund. And all of that stuff has sort of given an interim boost to the economy. It's also created a lot of zombie companies. The zombies, you yeah. know, essentially companies that, that probably shouldn't stay alive, but are now alive, right? And, and one concern I have is, if you look at supply chains, right? I mean, if you don't see an increase in orders, most companies, mid-sized suppliers, they run with like 50, 60 days of cash. Yeah. And then you get a short boost, but down Q3, that's going to be out. And, and if you don't have an uptick in order volume, they're going to hit a hard a wall of, of, of working capital. And, and I think, you know, what we need to have happen is not, you cannot, you cannot fund the global B2B supply chain to and money. It's just, you can maybe give consumer stimulus and give a check to people. But if you think about the scale of the global B2B supply chain, I mean, it's trillions and trillions and trillions. You can't do that. But what you might be able to do is to get the companies to pay early. You might be able to say, hey, big companies, we will underwrite the risk on you starting up and ordering. So you're not taking the full capital book of, of, of the whole supply chain, but you say, in case there's something that goes wrong, we will underwrite those two checks, almost like insurance. And I think that's what needs to happen, or you're gonna have a real real challenge when, when Kuchinki forecasts. And the benefit of that is also, that it sort of don't trade more zombie companies because the orders will go to companies that actually have business. Right. And I, th- I think I saw you guys are doing some of these programs around 
underwriting early repayment, right? Not waiting the usual 30 years, 45 or 60 days. We, we, we wanted to, I mean, Spartans is sort of, MBAs in the 80s screwed the world. Um, <laughs> because in so many ways, that's hard to understand, right? Because they came out with all of these ideas of mean, and, and they built supply chains that was extremely fragile. And the reason they built supply chains that were extremely fragile was they were the post war generation. Nobody had ever seen any problems. Right. right? So, and, and I mean, it's pretty much true from until now. The world has just been a linear up to the right line with a few tiny bumps compared to, to that, right? And so, so supply chains are extremely fragile and, and they have almost no capacity for change. When I left the UK, um, in the start of all of this, the UK had two weeks of aspirin left. If you think about that just as a number, it's, it's just not fun, right? Yeah. And the same goes for capital. So all supply chains are set up, pretty much used to be set up in a mindset that's win-lose. Meaning if, if as a buyer don't get a cheaper price and screw the supplier, I lose. Yeah. And so it's either the supply losing or the buyer losing. And one of the ways that that has happened is with capital. So it's very normal if you do business with a Fortune 500 company, a big company, say, hey, we'll pay you after 45 days, we'll pay you after 60 days. What people forget is that actually used to be the time it, you needed to process it. Oh, you need to look at the invoice, open it, put it in front of the boss, he'll say yes, and then somebody needed to send a check. That was actually the physical time it took to pay. So it was like 15 days, 30 days. But companies found out, oh, if we stretch this, it's essentially free money. It's just free working capital. So if we stretch it out to 60 days, yeah. it's free working capital. But what you're doing is you're taking out, I mean, you're taking out a norm in the smallest companies in the world, and you're one of the biggest companies in the world. It's just, it doesn't make sense because all of these companies will have to pay a lot of interest to support you. They have to go to the bank. They have to use the credit card. They have to finance in all of these ways to try to actually extend that credit to a Fortune 500 company who can lend the money at essentially negative interest rate. So what we tried to do was not to start a lending program, but see if we could correct that imbalance. And the way we wanted to do that was to say, well, if we have all of the data about who's buying, technically the credit risk, you know, you shouldn't be on the supplier, right? I mean, if I'm a supplier and send an invoice to, you know, a startup versus, uh, you know, a huge Fortune 500 company, there should be very different risk. But the bank, they look at the suppliers, the same thing. They say, oh, we will give you the same risk no matter what. But we could use the data to say, well, if you send to the big company, you shouldn't pay more than the company paid for that debt to get the money now. That's essentially what we've done. We've accelerated. So if you use the tracing network and you invoice your customers, we can automatically compress that window to get paid down to 24 hours whenever it's with one of our customers that's within that program. And, and right now, it's most of our customers that fit within that envelope. And where we want to get it is just to make it the default. Like no matter who you invoice, you'll be paid within 24 hours. We want to do that as cheap as possible. So our goal is not to sort of skim, you know, I mean, you know, we, we obviously take a fee for, for compressing it, but we're actually trying to drive down the cost compared to credit cards or factoring or all of these sort of very, uh, very expensive programs out there. What did you see when the lockdowns happened in terms of just activity? I mean, is there, was there any kind of precedent for the way, for the way the kind of the world, the world economy reacted to what you, and in terms of what you saw? Yeah, I mean, first off, right, we, we actually, we didn't know what it was in hindsight. Um, we saw in November and December, we saw like big drops in Wuhan and around in China. And, and this was way before anybody was talking about a pandemic, right? But come January, when that discussion started, we immediately knew, okay, there's something up here. We gave a lot of our customers a heads up, right? So, so we were sort of pretty early in, in the cycle of thinking, okay, this is, this is big. 
we essentially saw immediately, you know, I mean, that was a ma- I mean, Q1 was pretty much like a 30% drop across the board. Right. Um, and in some industries, way more. So if you look at retail, it was just like cliff, right? I, I think, you know, from a business perspective, a lot of the digitalization we've done the last 25 years is fake. It's, it's fake digitalization. So what I mean with that is we've got a lot of software. We've got some pretty SAP. We've got some yeah. pretty Oracle. We're looking at some pretty screens. But deep down below all of that, in in the dungeons almost, you have people that are opening envelopes, putting them in scanners, uh, tapping in the numbers that, that shows now our screens, right? So so there's this whole physical, massive physical layer behind our business software. And, and you know, with, with tens of thousands of millions of workers and scanners and, and, and physical processes processing it so we can do that. And, and what happened was when COVID started, all of those workers were sent home. Um, so I, have, I mean, I had customers calling me saying, "Hey, we have a million invoices sitting in our mailroom that we mm. can't process. Have you about to report our quarterly specific?" And other sort of really big impact were that companies sort of discovered that the station we had built is not really real. We got a very nice user interface, but it, it's just covering up a lot of shit, and 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 people are really dramatically pushing. So now change that because it's, it's too big a liability, it's too big a risk. But honestly, if something like this happened, happened, people will probably be fine and say, okay, well, it kind of works, you know, it's just, it's just. So it's like a layer of digitization over a much thicker layer of just old school shuffling of papers. It's like, you know, ecology is just, we have just layered stuff on stuff on stuff on stuff. And below all of it, you will find some, you know, IBM mainframe from the 70s. Right. And we have, we have found that one. I mean, there's so many times, you know. And, and, and so, I mean, or, or facts. Like, I mean, the amount of supply chains that run on facts is scary. You, what? No one uses a fax today. Trust me. So, I mean, uh, you know, for a lot of our company, uh, customers, that was the main way to deliver purchase orders to a lot of customers. By fax. <laughs> I haven't used a, I haven't used a fax in, I would... I don't know, at least uh, seven, eight years, I would guess. I had to do a YouTube video about how they work. Like, I mean, I couldn't remember. <laughs> so, I mean, so, 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 so the, the thing is, it's like ecology, right? We just added crust on top of crust. And because there was never a real incentive to change over, whereas in consumer, it's all creative destruction. Right? Like the next thing destroys the previous thing, it's gone. Who remember MySpace? It's gone. It's not like MySpace, it's still like a layer below Facebook. But in, in enterprise, it layers. So, so space technically would be a layer below Facebook that we don't layer below the next thing. I mean, in some ways, if there's a silver lining, we needed a big, big event like this. And I think the impacts are much bigger than people think, right? And, and, and back to the MBAs that destroyed the world, actually, in the 80s, right? So, so one thing that the smart MBAs in the 80s found out was we should shift all of our production to China and to yeah. other countries. And, and because we can save, like, 15% on our supply chains. And, and what we did was we followed our economies in the Midwest, in the UK, if you go to Northern England, like Manchester, everywhere, right? I mean, just followed it out. And 20 years later, what do we have? You know, 30 years later, populism, trade war, tariffs, you know, I mean, we are paying 10 times the savings we got in the 80s on those moves. I think what most people didn't understand in the 80s, which, which I, with all of my customers, that's a growing understanding of this, is that supply chains are very long-term features, right? Like 
but what you do it's almost like climate change what you do today you, you're going to be impacted within 10 years yeah and, and so you've got to have a 10-year horizon of what you do i mean we talk climate we talk jobs we talk all of these things so you've got to think about what is the footprint of your supply chain across the board and not in sort of some you know hippie save the world sense just as a business right? today a lot of companies will say wow actually we lost both ability to be agile, we lost the ability to innovate faster, we had closer suppliers to us, we knew for generations we could work with, we replaced with something that's very hard to change. I think, you know, the software, that layer of software and all of that is also made almost impossible to change. Right. Once that's set up and running, it's almost like it's been, you know, put in concrete. You don't want to change it. And now there's sort of a growing movement that you want to be able to change these things faster. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm John Pienaar, and you can hear my afternoon program on Times Radio. Wherever you are in the world, do join me as I talk about the big issues of the day to experts, journalists, and guests. Listen to my afternoon show for free on DAB Radio, your smart speaker, online at times.radio and via our free Times Radio app. Every Monday to Thursday, 4 p.m. till 7 on Times Radio. Know your times. Do you think this, the pandemic, one of the many results of it will be a kind of a, a reshoring movement of kind of bringing supply chains back back home or closer to home and if so how is that going to get paid for if you know the companies that are thinking about doing this in many cases are already under financial duress i think what we're going to see is what i would call multi-shoring not reshoring so i don't think i mean i don't think companies are going to pull the supply chain out of chain I mean, there's a lot of tension with China yeah. right these days, right? But look, China is about to be the largest domestic market in the world. It's the second largest domestic market in the world. Everybody think about China as an exporting nation. Every big company in the world, they're not thinking about China as an export anymore. They think about how can we sell to China. Yeah. And if you pull your supply chain out of China, it's very simple. You're not going to be selling to China. So, so, so it's not that people are going to move their supply chains out of China. But they're going to make sure they also have capacity in Mexico. They're going to make sure they have capacity in the UK, that they have capacity. And I think you're going to see a lot more what I would call micro or medium manufacturing sites. Just as an example, right, one of our customers in, in, in fast-moving consumer goods, they're building factories right now around the world 
that is 80% robots and 20% manually controlled robots for the tasks that require human. There's still no human, but it's manually controlled by workers sitting in shared service centers in India. So the factory might be in northern France. It might be 80% robots, but for the difficult tasks that require dexterity and you know human, um, they're just using a human that sits in India. Um, so so things like that, wow. I think, will will be the next generation of, of manufacturing capacity around the world. So so absolutely, you know, reshoring and multi-shoring is going to happen big time. The reason you can afford it is, I mean, these new sites are not going to cost 10% of of what yeah, an old school factory cost built. And in terms of that, this report that you pulled to get pulled together based on all the data you're seeing, is there anything else that you see that might be coming out of this that pe- people perhaps haven't really thought about or haven't fully kind of twigged yet? I mean, I, I think it's 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 been discussed, right? But I mean, retail fell off a cliff in, in the beginning of this, and and even in the regions that that technically open up, um, retail is not bound bounce back a lot and I mean I think what's pretty much happened is we have now trained the last consumers to shop online if you can why go I mean why take the risk and, and I think what a lot of people forget is even if this virus is not deadly for everyone even if it's just really uncomfortable why run the risk of going to the cinema like this is there enough value in watching a movie that you want to risk being really sick for two weeks I mean, even if there's the worst flu in the world, I mean, so so you've got to be above that threshold, right? So yeah. yes, you might actually go to a restaurant to see your friends because that's a social thing and you miss them and that might be a thing if you trust them and all of that. But going to the movie, going to Tesco, like, uh, no way, right? I mean, so so I think, you know, we have trained. I mean, the data shows it also, right? The, you know, the passing volumes are up like men to homes, but also to companies. And, and retail is off a cliff. So I think, that reset have happened, and I, I honestly think something like the high street in the UK is we're never going to see it come back the way it was. Do you have any sense of what they will turn into? Because I've been in my previous job in the UK, I did a lot of stuff around kind of industry, you know, the big, dirty old industries. And you go to an old company town where a steel mill has shut down or fired up a bunch of people, and it's really it's tough. It's tough for everybody who lives there. The high streets are depressing because every third shop is either boarded up or a charity shop. I mean, there's no, it's, they're just kind of dead zones. I think you will see a lot more really, really local stuff. I'm much more likely to go to that specialty, specialty cheese store that has 200 different kinds of cheese that I can't get in the supermarket if I'm, I'm craving cheese. Much more likely to do that than risk the Tesco experience or the wine store or whatever, right? So essentially, what you got to do is you're going to compress the value of that experience to go there above the threshold of risk. And, and the only way you do that, I think, is going deeper, not broader. But I also do think that manufacturing is going to get a resurgence in, in a lot of areas, right? And, and, you know, there is a lot of capacity in, in a lot of these places, right? So if you are, let's say, a, a manufacturing company and you're looking at multi-shoring, the first place you would look is actually some of those regions because guess what labor cost is low for whatever labor you need to produce it and build, like be part of that process, right? It might be not percent robotics. So, so some, but not as, as we saw before, right? And you, you're seeing that, uh, you mentioned that company that's using effectively all robots. 
that feels like it's that's a, a train that is leaving the station as well. I mean, I know we've been talking about automation for decades, but it feels like it's becoming more extreme as these machines get better at understanding where they are spatially and being able to do more complicated tasks. I think the first, I mean, you, you can take it from like, like Tesla and look at what they're doing, right? So Tesla, they went all in on, on, on automation, almost crashed the company. That, that was what you know, Elon Musk called production hell. Um, they realized robots could not build their cars like in the last mile, which actually was a known secret in the auto industry for years, right? And and what they did was though they, they they pulled out a lot of the robots. Musk didn't what he then did instead he said, Okay, let's redesign the car so robots can build the car. And and that's what a lot of old industry is not willing to do, right? I mean that you're not seeing GM doing that. So so just as an example, right, one thing that's really hard for a robot to do is to do the wiring, like all of the electrical wiring in the car. So what Tesla are doing now, they have found a number of patterns, is to turn the car into a number of modules. So every module, like the car door is a module, it has its own computer, and it has like the hinge, it's a connection set. No wires needed because that's a standalone module. When you plug it in, it just links with the rest of the car. So, so they went back and redesigned the car to be fully automated, produced. Apple is doing the same for, for the computers. Mm. They have essentially redesigned how a computer worked and, and built and the components work to be able to automate it to the last mile. So the last mile automation is as much about redesigning how the goods work, how they're built, what a car is, to, to do that automation uh, rather than making more advanced robots. And that's a big thing what's happening right now across the board as people are learning that. So you will see different packaging. You will see different ways of building cars, completely different ways. They might look exactly like the same car, but the manufacturing method is, is radically different. Uh, radically different ways of building computers. All of this stuff will change massively over the next 10 years. So the design process is actually what's, what's driving the full end of automation. And I think, you know, five to 10 years, uh, most manufacturing will be 80, 90% automated. And you've been, so you've been doing this for 10 years. What did you do before this? How did you end up? Moving to the West Coast, you're you're from Denmark, yes? Yeah, yeah, I'm Danish. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you never get rid of the accent. You <laughs> just gotta live with it. I mean, I always just followed like my curiosity. I don't think I ever set out to have like a big career in supply chain. You didn't. You didn't dream of being a supply chain guy when you were a little kid. I, I'm shocked. Yeah, no, right. I was not running around and saying if I could only. Um, no, I, I really got fast. I mean, I was fascinated with tech my whole life. Like, I was a computer geek, you know. I, I grew up with this stuff, right? And I think my generation, I mean, I'm generation X, and, and I think we have one distinct advantage, which is we were the first generation who got computers as toys. Yeah. But still had computers that were open enough systems that you could hack them and move around with them and play with them. And at Compo 64, you had to program to, to play a game, you know, and, and so. So I think that really created, you know, it created a different mindset around computing. But but anyway, so so when I was coming out of high school, I actually read uh, Douglas Cooper's Infraserves about startup. It's like this was way before the word startup. That's like '94, '95, was kind of like in Europe that was kind of thing. And it's like that's what I want to do. So I did that right after high school. We actually got into building very early generation mobile browsers. Yes, we do. You know, that went up and then down with with 2001 and and. My mom sort of pushed me to say, you better get a vacation. Uh, I, I knew how to program, so I decided to, to study sociology. I essentially think that everything on the net has to do with people more than it has to do with tech. So, so that seemed like the right way. 
did some consulting gigs, um, started doing consulting on cloud computing as emerging. Somebody recommended me for a big government projects that was going on around trying to digitize the payments for the Danish government. I went and sort of applied a very consumer mindset to that, and that worked out fairly well. And, and then the European Union put me in an even bigger project, and they're asking, hey, can you guys help consult for that? And before I knew it, I was uh, a supply chain and invoicing uh, trade expert. Uh, I didn't really set out to do that, but who has sort of been self-propelled, I'm just very bad at having a boss. So, you know, um, the, this this was sort of just, I, I think, following my curiosity, I always just want to see what's on the other side of this, right? what happens next, uh, rather than, you know, I think it's very hard to sit down and say, now we want to build this unicorn and become really rich, because you, you really get sick and tired of it after a couple of years. So if it's your curiosity, I think it's hard. Well, now you're very far from the whole Silicon Valley rat race, my unicorn is bigger than your unicorn thing. Yeah. Look, I think um, there's a shift right now. I think there's a shift from short term to long term. If you're building a SaaS company, and there's a few people out talking about this, like Jason Lemkin of Saster and, and some of those are talking about it, you should have a 20 to 30 year horizon. I mean, it sounds like madness, but but you think about it. Yeah, like, venture capitalists people, don't have that. They have a, you know, a no, five to no, seven. I mean, I mean, then it sucks to be them, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> if, if you think about it, right? like look, look at Benioff. You know, 20 years ago, he started Salesforce. After 10 years, Salesforce was worth a billion. He was the first SaaS unit. Everybody said to him, oh my gosh, Mark, your company is worth a billion. You should sell. Yeah. He said, he said nah, I, I want to keep going, right? 10 years later, it's worth $200 billion. Yeah. Literally 200 times. Like most VCs time horizon had been gone after the first 10 years. So I think we got to build structures, financing structures, funding structures, all of that, that can last 20, 30 years. And as founders, I think if you're in a SaaS business, if you're in a, in a because SaaS is compounding growth, yeah. that's essentially what it is. If you're any of those businesses, you're doing yourself a disfavor if you don't set up your ownership structure to belong to it. But how do you do that when you take money from a venture capitalist who's like, okay, my fund is 10 years, I'm going to put this money in now, which means I need this, we need to start thinking about an exit in five to seven. I think you've got to think outside the box. I mean, there's so much money in the world. We created our, a fund. Uh, the founders, we created a fund. We used our own stock as leverage for the fund. And then we bought more stock. And we found some people who saw that was a, you know interesting business and, you know, I mean, very well-renowned uh, you know, funds. But, but I think there's so many alternative capital structures you can build today. And, when, you know, if you go back 15 years, it, the only way you could get money was to go to Sand Hill Road, yeah. uh, go up and down, get the Wi-Fi password for every single place. You know, I know <laughs> one of them. Uh, I think I was probably, you know, uh, you know, one of the guys passed them. I think quite a few of them. But today, I mean, the really big guys and the really big funds that actually used to be the LPs for a lot of those VCs, they're playing direct. So, so I think there's so many other ways you can, you can structure stuff. If you're a founder today, you need to build some, some financial literacy really, really fast on how to do these structures because the amount of value you leave on the table is immense if, yeah. if you don't think through that, uh, that ownership structure for the long run. What was your worst day of work? Uh, three years ago, our Elastic Search Index, this is a little technical, our Elastic Search Index uh, got corrupted and every backup we loaded up kept self-corrupting. Uh, so essentially, none of our customers were able to see any of the invoices for three days. Oh, like nobody? No. And, uh, you know, it's it's not something I wish for anyone. Uh, it, was, it was 
free railway in such states, but yeah. Well, because that's something like, you know, because a lot of people look at software and it's kind of magic and it just works. And then you can, and if it doesn't, if control alt delete doesn't work uh, for you as a business, how is that an existential moment where people be like, you know what, this isn't that dependable. I need to think about my options here, go some, go elsewhere or come up with another plan. Yeah, I, I think look, it's it's the complexity of modern software is extremely high, like insane high, right? And 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 to be honest, and, and I probably you know I'm gonna get yelled at by everybody else in tech for saying this, right? But the complexity is probably so high that most companies don't really have a full grip on how it's working. And, and so so you're dealing with, I mean, as a sociologist, we think a lot about this. You're dealing with emerging systems. And you're dealing with emerging complexity. At a certain point, the complexity is just higher than humans can understand, especially if every single human is working on a small piece, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so you will have situations. I think you're better off understanding there will be situations like that. Now, most systems are built with so much redundancy, and that's essentially how we avoid these things, that we can correct and we can self-correct very fast. And correct, being able to correct this is way better than trying to never have a failure. So I think... You will have shitty days, no matter what industry in, in tech you're in. But I think you need to be able to correct. And I think we do also need to be able to talk more openly about some of these challenges, right? I, I talked to uh, a founder, uh, sorry, CEO, Martin Nichols of Hyder One, who said, I mean, actually, to be secure today, you need to be vulnerable. You need to admit that you will have security issues. Yeah. So, And you need to work with hackers who will try to hack you because that makes your software better. But a lot of companies don't want to do that because they're afraid of saying, hey, our software could be insecure. Um, and all software is insecure. Yeah. It's, it's by definition, right? So unless you test your immune system, you're never going to get better. And the same goes for, for issues like what I just described. I mean, unless you test, unless you have those issues, you don't get better. Do you have hackers all the time trying to break into your systems? Like people that you pay? We, we run a program. We, we, pay, we pay people to hack us. Yeah. So every time they find an issue, we'll pay them good money. Um, and that's much better than somebody else paying them for, for the system, right? <laughs> and I just have one more question and I'll let you go. Why Alaska? I mean, I always wanted to go. I, I you know, I've been in California for 10 years and I, like every year we said, why don't we go to Alaska or something? Like you never go because you have like a couple of days, but this year was like, look, there are no people. There's going to be no tourists there. We are all working from home anyway. So why not test out the most extreme work from home situation you can imagine and try to do that and, and see how that works. And, and then, you know, you're, you're living it yourself rather than uh, just telling everybody else what to do. So, so that's why Alaska. Well, just from what I can see through the windows, it looks pretty glorious. It is, it is amazing. Long light nights, uh, nature outside. You can walk outside, hike up. There's bears, there's moose, you know, um, the landscapes are fantastic. Well, stay safe. Keep your eye out for the bears. And um, perhaps one of these days we'll be able to actually have a drink back in the Bay Area. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Donnie. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Christian. I want to thank the bear for not showing up while we were speaking. I want to apologize if you had any issues listening to the audio. Sometimes Zoom works really well, and sometimes uh, it's a little more garbled. So such as life at the moment anyhow thank you again for listening for tuning in you can always find me on the twitters 
at Danny Fortson. You can email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll be back uh, next week. We may have one more pod before the usual Thursday, Friday uh, drop of next week. So stay tuned for that. And until then, thank you. And have a great weekend. Bye-bye. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.